Hey, Exodus, great book. And one of the things we've been talking about as we go through Exodus, I'm going to give you a quick background, is it's the wilderness journey of Israel. And as we see the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, it's a total picture for our lives today. You know, sometimes we look at things thousands of years old and we think, how does this apply to me? And we'll see that really clearly tonight. You know, Israel's travels through the wilderness is a clear picture of what happens with each one of us. It's a sanctification process. Remember, they were in bondage in Egypt. Egypt is a typology of what? Who remembers? Egypt's a typology of what? The world. Egypt is a picture of the world. And though they could get, God could get Israel out of Egypt, He needed to get Egypt out of Israel. Amen? He needed to get them, even though they were out of the world, He needed to get the world out of them. And the same is true with each one of us. We give our lives to Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are no longer citizens of this world. Amen? We're aliens here. But... We still struggle with our flesh every single day. And we still have that sanctification process in our lives. And that's what's happening in the wilderness with, with the people of Israel. Though they had gotten, again, they would gotten out of the wilderness. Now they've, they've traveled through. And each site that they stopped at, we've been talking about this the last few weeks, each site that they stopped at had a significance. The first place they stopped was a place called Sukkoth. Remember, that was Tent Town. And that, what is that a picture of? It's a picture that we as Christians, this is our temporary tent that we're living in. Amen? That our lives here are temporary. The second place they stopped was a place called Ethan. It was at the edge of the wilderness. And you know what? We knew that in that place that there was a desperate place. It looked totally desolate. But the word Ethan means with them. So even though they're in the most desperate place in the world, God was with them. We know that God showed His presence to them in two ways. Remember that He covered the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And they were to follow that and know that God was with them no matter what was going on around them. The third place they stopped was at the Red Sea. That was Piahiroth. And remember how we talked about the fact that God brought them there and that would seem like the, the worst uh, military maneuver ever. God brings them to a place where they have mountains on both sides and a sea behind them and the enemy coming at them. And you would think, how in the world is it? Because it said that the Lord led them there. And so often we're led by the Lord, we're walking in obedience to God, and we find ourselves backed up to a wall. And that's exactly what happened. But the reality is, until we get into a position that we're desperate, we don't realize how desperately we need God. Amen? If everything's perfect, there's money in the bank account, everybody's healthy, a lot of times we stop looking to God and we start trusting in our stuff and our situations. And so their backs were to the Red Sea and we saw the mighty hand of God at work. And when we go through trials, the world is watching, and you know what? It's the greatest opportunity for us to be a testimony. Remember that without a test, there can be no testimony. Amen? Without difficulties and trials of life, there's no way that the world will see that there's something different about us. Their fourth stop, right after they came through the, the uh, Red Sea, remember that God brought both judgment and deliverance all at one time. He brought judgment in that He judged Egypt and He delivered Israel at the same time. The place where they came after that was a place called Mara. Who remembers what that means? It meant bitterness. And just after the miracle of the Red Sea, they went to this place and they didn't have any water and they went to, so, to, to drink up the water and it was bitter and they could not drink of the water. Now remember what happened to make the water sweet. Remember, what did they throw in to make the water sweet? Who remembers? A tree, a representation of what? The cross of Christ. Just like when we go through bitterness of life, it's the cross of Christ that takes that bitterness away and makes things sweet. You know, when you look at things through the cross, you realize how blessed we really are. When you have an eternal perspective, the things of this world will not make you bitter. And that's what had happened. That was the fourth stop. The fifth stop was a place called Elam. It was an oasis, if you remember. After going through the desert, it was a place with palm trees and 12 wells. These wells that gushed forth, ton that, that 
perfect water after being this place of bitterness. Now what's awesome about that is the 12 wells were a representation of the 12 apostles and the 70 palm trees. We talked about the fact that palm trees are the only trees that bear more and more and more fruit until they die. A picture of what would happen with the 70 uh, disciples that were sent out by God to reach the known world. Then last week, we looked at the wilderness of sin. Now, you already know that's a bad place, right? The wilderness of sin. And we know as they were out in the wilderness of sin, that God brought them manna to feed them. Remember that? And he poured out manna, and manna is a representation or picture of Christ and the Word of God. Jesus is the Word, amen? And it's a picture that they were fed by the Word. Remember, they went out every single morning, and if they gathered up in the morning the manna, then they were satisfied for the entire day. That's such a picture for us. If you begin your day in the Word of God, you will be satisfied, amen? You will be satisfied in your walk. You'll do great things. The people that struggle in their walk, the people that I counsel with, they just don't get it, and they're just struggling, they're having the hardest time. The first question I always ask them is, how much time are you spending in the Word? And the answer is almost always none. Amen? How, how's your prayer life? Well, not very good. I'm not spending time in prayer. I'm not spending time in the Word, and I just don't understand what God's doing right now. Well, here's the reality. God is always, people say, well, I don't hear from the Lord. Well, God's always speaking. You're just not listening. Amen? God is always there. If you're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved? And here in the wilderness of sin, if they went out and they gathered up the manna, then they would be satisfied. And then lastly, before we look at the the chapter this morning, last week we also looked at the the place of Rephidim, which means a place of rest. If you remember that when they got there, they had no water once again, and they cried out and said, why don't you just send us back to Egypt? And do you remember what happened? The Lord told them to take the rod and to smote the rock. Now the rod is a picture of what? Who remembers? The cross, right? Wood, rod. And the rock is a picture of Christ. And then when they smote the rock, then the water came out. And the water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's only through the cross, only through Jesus' death on the cross, that we will be able to have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the next thing that happened was that right after that, they went into battle against Amalek. And if you remember from the lesson last week, they were battling Amalek. And the Lord said to Moses, as long as you hold up your hands, there will be victory against Amalek. Now, the Amalekites are a typology of the flesh. They are, are descendants of Esau. He was the carnal one. Remember the, the carnal seed? The Bible says that Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Why did God hate Esau? Because Esau was carnally minded. Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of soup, right? This guy was all about the flesh. And these were his descendants, the Amalekites. The Amalekites were wicked and vile people. They were, they were sneaking up behind the Israelites and, and snuffing out and killing the, the cripples and the people that were far behind. And God said he would bring judgment against them. Well, Moses, as long as he held up his hand, there was victory. And we know what happened, that, it's, that the, the hands being surrender. Remember that? And they went down into fight in the battle. And Joshua took the sword or the, with him. And what is the sword a picture of? The word of God. So he was fighting in the, in the valley of interaction with the sword while Moses was up on the hilltop of intercession praying on behalf of his people. And so that's a, a clear picture that if we want to see victory in the valley of intercession or interaction, we need to be praying on the hilltop of intercession. And so he was seeking after God. And he was praying, but his arms grew weary. And as soon as his arms fell, what happened? The Amalekites started running over the top of Israel. Then God sent, then the Lord said that Aaron and Hur came and held up his hands all day long. And as long as he held up his hands, they were victorious over the flesh. Now what's great about that is, we talked about this last week, when Joshua was fighting in that battle, when he looked over his shoulder, what did he see? He saw three men on a hill. He saw one of them holding on to wood and raising up his hands in worship to God. And what's awesome about that is that's a clear picture of the cross. That as they look back, what did they see? They saw the cross. And only through the cross may we have victory over the flesh. 
We also know that Moses was interceding, and where is Jesus right now? He's interceding on our behalf. So that brings us to chapter 18. Now it's a long um, introduction, but I just want to make sure that we just keep this thing, these things start being built into us. So when you're going through difficulty next week, you can say, yeah, I know about that bitterness. I, 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 you know, I know that that comes sometimes. I know about having my back against the wall at the Red Sea, but I know that when there is no way, God makes a way. And we can start learning to trust the Lord. And so we see again the, the clear picture of our life wandering through the wilderness. So tonight, we're going to see Moses reunited with his family. We're going to see him receive godly counsel. And we're going to see him raising up elders or delegating or giving away ministry. Look at verse 1. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, if you recall from all the way back earlier in Exodus, that when Moses was banished out of Egypt. He went out into the wilderness and he met some Midianites, one of which was Zipporah, which became his wife. And he went home and he met Jethro and Jethro, he found favor in Jethro's eyes and he ended up living there for 40 years. Jethro was his father-in-law. He married a, a Midianite woman by the name of Zipporah. We're going to talk about her in a minute. And we know that God was, he was satisfied there. He said, you know what, this is where I am, I'm a shepherd here. And then we know that the Lord appeared to him in a burning bush and had another plan. But he sees Jethro, the priest of Midian, his father-in-law, and he had heard all that God had done. Now this is what's awesome to me, is they didn't have telephones in those days, or telegraphs, or anything else, but still, the word had gotten all the way back to Midian as what had happened with Israel. Because this was major. I mean, Egypt was the greatest army in the world, and they had been wiped out in the Red Sea. Egypt was the most powerful people. They had all of Israel in bondage for over 400 years, and all of a sudden they'd been set free. And the word had gotten all the way back to Jethro, and Jethro had heard. And so we see here that he's going to come back and be reunited with his family. The news of God's great and awesome deliverance spread quickly. Verse 2. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eleazar. And he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So, when he comes back, he's reunited with his family. Now, we don't have exact words anywhere in Scripture where his wife and his sons had left. But the last time that we saw Moses' wife and sons, it wasn't a real good situation. It's in Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. And here's what happened. They're on their way out of Egypt. And are on their way to Egypt, excuse me. And on their way to Egypt, remember that there was a point where God had called them and Moses said, oh, I don't want to do it. I'm not the one who's called. Don't, you know, get somebody else. I'm a stutterer. And the Lord kept over and over and over again calling Moses. And finally Moses came. And when Moses was on the way, it said that the Lord came to him and sought to kill him. You guys remember that? The Lord sought to kill Moses. It's in chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. And it says that the Lord basically, I don't know if he had him down in a full Nelson or what, if the Lord you know, had him on the ground or you know, had him in a you know, double chicken wing or something. He had him on the ground, and, he, and you know what? His wife came up and saw that her husband was in danger. And when she saw that her husband was going to die, she did something drastic. Here's what she did. It says in, in the text there, and she grabbed a knife, and she grabbed her son, and she circumcised her son before Moses. And as her son was standing there bleeding, she cried out and said, you are a husband of blood. You're a husband of blood. Now, it's interesting to me that Moses should have already done that. 
But Moses had not done that. He had not obeyed the law. He had not obeyed God's command for his own children. And you know what? I want to tell you something. We see this so prevalent in the church today. He had married a Midianite woman. We don't know why he didn't obey God, but God had said every child born in the lineage of Abraham is to be circumcised, which is a picture of an outward change. It's like baptism today. Baptism is an outward statement of an inward change. It was a sign to the world around to say, look, I've given my life to God. It's a covenant between me and God. And Moses, because he had married a Midianite woman, I don't know if she just said, you're crazy, you're not doing that to my son. There's no way. What are you thinking about? We don't do that here. And Moses, I don't know if, if it was just because he was lax or because he didn't want to you know, rock the boat with his wife, but God had clearly, clearly says this in 1 Timothy, and, and the rule applied even to Moses. It says, One who rules in his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule in his own house, how will he rule in the church of God? The Lord would not allow Moses to go and free the Egyptians till his house was in order. And because his house was not in order, the Lord, it says, sought to kill him. That's pretty drastic. So the Lord was getting a hold of Moses, wouldn't let him move on, and his wife knew what the problem was. Now it's interesting to me that she knew, so there must have been some debate. There must have been some question between them. Should we do this? Should we not do this? Now practical applications for today. We have, you know, your kids want to do something. You know what the Bible says, but do you really want to rock the boat? Well, the Bible says we should do this, but you know, I mean, it's going to be such a headache. Well, let's just let it slide this time. If that's what Moses had done. God's word is very clear instead of being obedient to the Lord. The other thing that we see very often is the same thing that Moses did. I believe, this is my opinion, just Dave's opinion, my opinion is his wife didn't want him to do it and he didn't want to rock the boat, so he just let his wife make the decision. You know what, guys? I want to make this real clear. God has called you to be the spiritual leader in your house. Amen? Doesn't mean that your wife is less than you or, or anything else, but God has created you to be the spiritual leader. The Bible says all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when there was sin in the garden, he said, this is the curse. Man will toil in the ground for his wages. Man will have to toil and work. Woman, the woman will have, will have pain in childbirth, and she will desire headship over the man. She will desire to be the one that's in charge. Now, this is real popular in a, in a women's lib world today, but here's the reality. The Bible says that women are the weaker vessel. Doesn't mean they're less. Doesn't mean they're less godly. Doesn't mean they're less called. It means they're called differently. And men are called to be the spiritual leader in their homes, and, and their wives are called to be submitted to them. Now, you know what, guys? When I'm on my knees, and I'm on my face, and I'm seeking after God, and I'm totally submitted to Him, it's easy for my wife to submit to me. But if I'm being a jerk with an iron fist and saying, you know, sit down, shut up, and submit, that's not going to work very well. Amen? And you know what? Wives, you're not to submit to a man who's like that anyway. Because that's not, the Bible says, wives submit to your husbands as your husbands submit to the Lord. Your husbands are to be submitted to God. And our children, it's easy for our children to submit to us if they see us submitted to the Lord. If they see us loving God and praying for them and serving God, well that's the problem here. Moses has been disqualified for ministry because he's not ruling in his house. And God says, you know what, you're not going to Egypt till you get this thing straight. And so finally we know that his wife throws it down and calls him a husband of blood. So one of two things again is the problem. Either his wife was not submitted to him or he was not submitted to the Lord. And I have a feeling that it was probably both. What was the result? He abdicated and gave his wife, you do whatever you want. And ultimately ended up with strife in his home and then resentment from his wife. His wife had to take spiritual headship in his home because he wouldn't. Finally, she's the one that had to do to her son what Moses should have done. And what ends up happening is she's angry with her husband. There's resentment. You know what, guys? 
I know sometimes it may be difficult, but if your wife has to take the role that you're supposed to have before it's over, there is going to be resentment. I promise you. Why doesn't he pray with my kids? Why, why isn't he spending time in the Word with our children? Why doesn't he sit... How come he doesn't take spiritual leadership in our home? You're, God's called you to do that. You know what? Before you do any other ministry... Before you think about coming early to set up chairs, before you think about doing any, being on the worship team or anything else, you need to make sure that you're doing your first ministry first. And your first ministry is your wife, and your second ministry, or part of that first ministry, are your children. You minister to them first, amen? You give of them your first fruits. And then as you're called by God to do more than that, that's great. But God, we see, deal very cl- uh, clearly with Moses because he did not put his wife at first and did not obey God's clear command for him. Now look at the names of his children. It's interesting. The first one is Gershon. That means stranger in a foreign land. And this is a picture of Moses' life changing before our eyes because what happened when Moses went to Egypt, went out of Egypt and into Midian? He was a stranger in a foreign land. And what are we as Christians? We are strangers in a foreign land. But here's the good news. His second son's name was Eleazar. And it means the God of my father, my help, and the deliverer from the sword of Pharaoh. You know what? That's who our God is. He is our deliverer. Though we are aliens here, our God has delivered us. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, you are going to heaven, and God has delivered you. You are a new creation in Christ. It is finished. That's what he said on the cross. Amen? It's done. Now, we're still being conformed more and more to his image, but we have the assurance of salvation, and we know where we're headed. We also know that the battle belongs to the Lord and the victory's been won. Now, it's interesting to me that Zipporah is really a picture or a type of the church. Why? She was sanctified. She was a, uh, she was a Gentile, but she was sanctified by her marriage to Moses. And what sanctifies us? We are the bride of Christ, and we are sanctified by our marriage to the Lord. Amen? We're not sanctified because of how clean and how good we are. We're sanctified because of who we're wed to. Jesus Christ. He is the groom, and we are the bride, the church. And that's why we are sanctified, and that's why Zipporah was sanctified. It's interesting also that we too are strangers in a foreign land, and that God has delivered us from the hand of the enemy. And we also see in this picture a real clear picture of the millennial kingdom. And, this is, and I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the manna, in ch- back a few chapters ago in chapter 16, represented Jesus Christ being incarnate on earth. The rock was a picture of Christ. The rod that smote the rock was a picture of the cross. The water pouring out of the rock was a picture of the Holy Spirit. Them being up on the mountainside was a picture of intercession. And then now we, we will see in this chapter that they're all going to come together and be reunited again. So Moses has been away from his family. He comes back to his family at the mountain of God, as we'll see in the next verse. And that's the same place where Jesus Christ is going to return to earth. Isn't that interesting that here comes Moses. He comes back to the mount of God. And he is reunited with his family. And isn't that what's going to happen when the Lord returns for us? Amen? He's going to be reunited with his family. Clear picture, several thousand years ago. You've got to love the Bible. Verse 5. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and with his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Some people believe this is Sinai, Mount Sinai. But again, this is the very same region where the Mount of Olives, where, where we're going to see end times prophecy being fulfilled. Verse 6. Now, it was, now he said to Moses, I, your, I am your father-in-law, Jethro. I am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. 
And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. Now Moses, look at the greeting that he has for his father-in-law. This is a great lesson for all of us. Moses is one of the most mighty men of God on the planet at this point, if not the most mighty man of God on the entire planet. But how does he greet his father-in-law? With humility and with respect. You know, a lot of times we can even allow our position in the body of Christ to somehow make us think that we're something really special. The reality is, the Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. The Bible says He gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. The Bible says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It blows my mind that, you know, pastors, and most of you know that I was a youth pastor at a church that was very, very large, and sometimes when pastors get in churches, and I've seen some churches where the churches are huge, and the pastor has all these, like, bodyguards around him, you know, keeping him away from the people. He's just elevated to some height. That's ridiculous. You know what? He's supposed to be a servant. Amen? And Moses understood that. And when Moses came back, what was his heart? His heart was humble. His heart was to honor his father-in-law. It says he came and he kissed him, he bowed down and, and kneeled before him, an act of humility. Moses was very humble and respectful of his father-in-law. They went into his tent and they talked about what God had done. Now again, when you come back from something like this, what are you going to do but have an awesome testimony? He had gone through an incredible test, and now he had a wonderful testimony to share with his father-in-law. The same is true of us when we go through tests. It ends with an opportunity for testimony. Verse 8. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done in Fer- to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon, come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. Once again, trials lead to testimony. Without a test, there can be no testimony. The Lord had delivered them. All the good that happened had been because of the Lord. You notice Moses doesn't take any of the credit. Moses doesn't say, hey man, you should have seen me with the stick, man. It was pretty awesome. I raised it up and the whole sea opened up. You should have been there. I'm telling you, it was incredible. He doesn't say that at all. He says, God did awesome things. You should have seen what God did. And what does Jethro do? He praises God before it's over. Jethro ends up rejoicing before the Lord. And you know what? When God moves in our lives, we should honor and glorify God so much that it causes other people to rejoice. Don't you rejoice when you hear about God doing great things in the lives of other people? Doesn't it just bless you? Don't you love it when you're praying for somebody, maybe they're really sick? I'll never forget several times I've been able to pray for people that that doctors said they're going to die, that's it. There's no way, game over. They're going to die. It's a matter of time. And you know what? I've seen God heal people that were in those circumstances. He doesn't always. It's always part of His perfect plan. But I remember those times, and you just, whoa! I remember praying for a woman on, on Sunday at church, and she called me Tuesday morning at home and said, I went to the doctor, and she had had head-to-toe cancer. They'd given her a few days left to live. She went to the doctor, and all her cancer was gone. And I have to admit to you, I, initially I was surprised, and that's pretty sad, right? Here's Pastor Dave praying for somebody, and then, really? He answered the prayer? Whoa! You know, and, and the sad part is that we get that way. But what rejoicing should come from it? And it did. It was incredible. Well, here's what's happened. Moses comes back and says, man, God did such awesome things. He delivered us out of bondage. He cro- we crossed through the Red Sea. He fed us from the sky. He brought quail out of the sky. He led us by a pillar of fire. You know, we went and we fought the Amalekites. And as long as we held up, man, it was incredible what God did. He brought water out of a rock. And what does Jethro say? That's awesome. He was rejoicing in the Lord because of the testimony of Moses. You know what? Sometimes the saddest thing is that we all have a testimony and we're afraid to share it with anybody. 
You know, we get quiet and we don't want to say anything. You know, most of you know I've had a chance to take a lot of groups over to Russia, and, and what a lot of the kids will get all nervous, and I'll say, you know what, you do have, they'll say, well, Pastor Dave, I've only been a Christian for, you know, a year, and I, you know, I don't know the whole Bible, and, the, and I say, you know what you have? You have a testimony. You can tell people, this is who I was, then I met Jesus, and this is who I am now. And you know what, if you're a Christian and you're here tonight, you have a testimony. Amen? And it doesn't have to be the most eloquent thing in the world, but you can say, this is who I was, and then I met Jesus, and this is who I am. And nobody can dispute that. And that's what Moses said. You know what? We went and the hand of God was there. And Jethro began to rejoice. He was excited. Trials ultimately result in God being glorified. So if you're going through a trial right now, if you're going through difficulty, out of work, finances are struggling, opportunity for God to be glorified. Opportunity for you to be salt and light to a lost and dying world around you. They're watching. Verse 10. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they have behaved proudly, He was above them. Now this is interesting. Jethro praises the true God and testifies that there is no other like Him. But do you know what the Midianites were famous for? The Midianites were idol worshippers. And now Jethro's saying, you know what? This proves to me that your God is God. This proves to me that there is no other God. And sometimes it's only when we go through those great and difficult trials and people see the love of God in us in the midst of it that they say there must be something true about your God. You know, it's interesting. We, were playing, we have a church softball team and we play in the city league. And just the other night, a couple guys said to me, man, you know, and, and God's blessed us. We're 9-0 and we, we won like 25-3 to the other night. But the other team came up and said, you know what? I don't mind playing you guys even though you guys beat us because, man, you guys just... Your attitudes and your hearts. And somebody told Ken Horn, you know, man, God really is with you guys. I mean, you guys don't get upset. You have the joy of the Lord. You know, and the, the umpires go, man, there's something different about you guys. And see, that's the way it ought to be for Christians. Amen? There ought to be something different about us. They ought to say, man, you know what? Your God is God. Because you're so different. You know, at work, we ought to be the best workers in the building, and people ought to say, what's different about that person? Why do they have joy when things are difficult? Because our joy is not based on our circumstances. Amen? Our joy is based on the fact that we have been adopted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we're going to heaven. Amen? That we're His kids, and no one can ever take that away from us. And that's where our joy comes from. It doesn't come from the money in the bank and the circumstances. Let me tell you this. If you don't have joy in your current circumstances, there's no circumstance that can bring you joy. Because money will not bring you joy. It can bring temporary happiness, but not eternal joy. And if you're waiting for your circumstances to be perfect, you're going to be waiting forever. Elvis Presley said, I'd give everything I have, all my money, all my fame, for 30 minutes of peace. You can't have peace until you know the Prince of Peace. And here he is saying, you know what? Your God is God. Your God has to be God. I mean, he wiped out, and the Egyptians were proud. Remember, the Egyptians had over 300 gods. Remember that? They had a god of, 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 you know, the frog god and all these weird gods, right? Half frog, half woman, and all this stuff. And remember the plagues were plagues of frogs? Do you remember that? And God was just wiping out their god. Your god's not real. Your gods are no good. And the gods of this world are no good. Money and fame and power and prestige and position, all fading. I've yet to meet a person, and I've prayed with people on their deathbed before. I've never prayed with a person on their deathbed that said, I wish I could have worked another day. 
You know, I just wish I could have had a look. You know what? The steam and the position and all that is faded away when you're sitting there knowing you're about to meet the creator of the universe. None of that means anything anymore. It's all of no value. The stuff that you valued so greatly. And Jethro's looking at it and he says, you know what? Your God is God. The thing that the Egyptians were so proud of got wiped out. And remember that Egypt was the greatest and strongest army on the planet. They were just wiped out. Wiped out by a guy with a stick. Amen? Moses comes in with a stick. They got a mighty army. And Moses leaves with a couple of million people behind him. And the Egyptian army is toast. Pharaoh's dead. Everything is caved in around them. They don't have their people anymore. How is that possible? Because God plus Moses is greater than all the armies in the world. Amen? And you plus God is the majority. And he comes back and Jethro says, Man, you know what? There's no other God like yours. Your God is God. There's no other way. But again, if they had not been in bondage, if they had not gone through trials, there would never have been this opportunity for a testimony. Verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and offered other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law, before God. Now this is awesome to me, is what does it drive his father-in-law to do to make sacrifice? We have to remember that in the Old Testament, sacrifice is a picture of repentance. Sacrifice points to the cross. When they're sacrificing a firstborn spotless lamb, they didn't understand it fully then, but it was pointing to the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world. It was a picture of Jesus. So when they would slit the lamb's throat and they would sprinkle this blood, the Bible says that there can be no remission of, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. This is a picture of repentance in the heart of Jethro. Why? Because he's seen that God is real in the life of his son-in-law. You know what? I'm not going to embarrass you, but my wife was the first one in her family saved. And then not long after that, her, her, bro- her brother got saved, then her father got saved. And a lot of times they'll say, you know, I saw a difference in Lynette. And that's what tra- changed my life. That's what made me want to know more about God. And it should be the same in all of our families. People should say, there's something different. God's done something in you. And God had done something in Moses, and because of what God had done in Moses, it caused Jethro to make sacrifice to the true and living God. Now Moses goes, and not not only does he come back with a testimony, but now he's going to get counsel from his father-in-law. And as he gets this counsel from his father-in-law, he's going to respond. And you know what? Even though he's Moses, even though he's the most godly man around, he still is seeking godly counsel. We should always have a teachable spirit. Amen? I don't care if you've been a Christian three days or 55 years, there's still more God wants to teach you. Amen? There's still more that God wants us to learn. And Moses has the right heart as he's going to establish elders and give some ministry away as he receives godly counsel. Look at verse 13. And so it was the next day that Moses set to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing to the people? doing for the people. Why do you sit alone and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Now remember, Moses is the, you know, the senior pastor of a church with between two and three million people. You think you might have a few counseling appointments. You think you might have a few people that want some prayer requests. So Moses would sit there by himself and all day long, can you imagine the line waiting to talk to Moses? You know, can you imagine from here, and as far as you can see, there's a line. And Moses would sit there, and they'd come up one after another. 
And it could be, you know, me and my wife are arguing, or this is happening, or my son's not feeling well. You know, this guy broke my shovel. What should we do? I'll give him a new one. I mean, you know, and here they are. They're having these debates, and they're all coming in before Moses. And Moses is pastoring two to three million people all by himself. And his father-in-law sits there and looks and goes, what are you doing, man? What, what are you thinking? You're doing this by yourself? Why are you sitting alone and doing this? Moses is, well, because I'm, God told me, I'm the guy. They come to me, that's why. They all come and want to talk to me, so I'm here. And so they're coming to Moses, and again, Jethro wants to know why he had no help. Why don't you have help? Why is it you're doing this all by yourself? Verse 15. So, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of the Lord. Verse 16. When they, and when they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So the people come to Moses, and I sit here all day long, and the people keep coming and coming and coming, so I just sit here all day long. And I just keep doing, I keep ministering to them, and I keep judging for them, and I keep giving them direction for their lives, and that's why. Because they just keep coming, so I'm just, I'm just here. You know what? It's interesting to me that in the body of Christ, there's one, or two, one of two extremes that happens in most believers. And let's look at 17 and 18, I'll talk about them. So Moses' father-in-law said, this is not a good thing. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourselves. In the body of Christ, there are two extremes. Here's what they are. There are those who would say they've been saved for years and they've never done anything for the kingdom of God in their entire life. There's a lot of those folks. You know, the pew potatoes, I like to call them, right? You come to church and you get fed, you fat or sheep, just keep eating and before you know it, you're just these huge sheep that can't get out the door. But you just keep getting fed, 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 fed. You got all the books of the Bible, forward, backward, sideways, inside out. You've heard 47 messages on every chapter of the Bible, but you're doing nothing. There's no fruit, just fat sheep. And there's a lot of folks that are like that. They'll be the first ones that complain because something's not happening at church, but they're not doing anything. Now, the other extreme is the person who tries to do everything, right? They're on, if, there's, if you've signed up 12 different, you know, we need help with 12 different things, they put their name on all 12 of them. I'll, I'll be setting up chairs, working the sound, be on the worship team, teaching Sunday school, go on the missions trip, help set up the bookstore. Uh, I'll be handing out bulletins. And, you know, and they try to do 97 things all at one time. And those two extremes. Now, the second extreme, I think, is better than the first one because I think people at least have a heart to serve. But you know what? That's not God's highest either. God, you know what? The, the church is not about one or two people doing everything. Everybody in this room is called into the ministry. Amen? God saved you to use you. You know, not just to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card and, you know, okay, God in my back pocket, and then when I get to judgment, there it is, right? I mean, that's not the whole, you know, praise the Lord, you're going to heaven, that's good. But He saved you to use you. And He's called you, and He's equipped you. And now you need to be obedient to that calling. But what happens is, some people try to do everybody's calling because no one else is doing it. And you know what? That's a dangerous thing. And that's what Moses was doing. Moses was being the whole church. The whole staff. Can you imagine? He's the guy for three million people. I'm hit. I'm the only one. Can you imagine? I mean, it must have been like an audience of the Pope to get to see Moses. I mean, three million people? Can you imagine? But a lot of people probably know what he looked like. Who's Moses? What, is, what does he look like? Three million people? That's huge. That's three times the size of San Jose, right? And they, they're all coming to Moses. And so his father-in-law says to him, Moses, you know what? You're doing too much. And you're going to wear yourself out. 
You're going to burn out. You're not going to make it. And again, he didn't suggest that he abandon his calling or, or abandon his responsibility, but he's going to give him some godly wisdom. Look at verse 19 and 20. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the, what they must do, the work that they must do. So what is Moses, the, again, the quote, senior pastor of Israel supposed to do? His two main functions are to intercede and pray for the people and to teach them the law. You know what? That hasn't changed. The Bible says that my, my calling above all else is to, to love you guys, to pray for you guys, and to teach you guys the Word of God without compromise. The Bible says a pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, I, I want to come and help and do everything else too, but my chief calling above all else is to teach you guys the Bible without compromise. It's to spend whatever time is necessary studying and praying to intercede for you guys, and that is totally my privilege. And for me, that is the, the greatest get-to in the world. I can't believe that I get to do this. I can't believe that I get to spend time praying for you guys, that I get to study God's Word and share with you. It is the greatest privilege and blessing on the planet. You know, Paul said, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. And you know what, they could back up a truck in front of my house and say, we'll give you a billion dollars on one condition, you can never teach the Bible again. I'd say, go pound sand. Because you know what, that stuff is temporal. That stuff doesn't matter. You know what, There's no, the greatest joy in the world is doing what God's called you to do. Moses was doing more than he was called to do. And so his counsel was going to be, you need to give some of the ministry away. You need to give it away. Pastor Don in San Jose used to always say, the sign of successful ministry is not how it functions when you're there, but how it functions when you're not. Because it's not about you. Amen? If you, if you leave and the church crumbles, there's way too much of you involved in the church. Amen? You know what? If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, the church would just keep going. Should have nothing to do with me. It's not about the pastor. It's about the Savior. Amen? It's all about Jesus. And Jesus Christ is not dead. Amen? Sometimes a pastor's moving away or going to a different city and people go, oh, what are we going to do? Well, you know what? If, oh man, we're going to have to pray more. There it is. That's good. You're going to have to pray more. You're going to have to trust God more. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6, in the day that King Uzziah died, the people saw the Lord. When the man died and got out of the way, people saw God. The foundation for Calvary Santa Cruz is Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. Amen? And it's not about any man. And too many churches has got the worldwide ministry of some guy's name. And so here's what he's told him to do. You're to stand before God for the people. You're to pray and to intercede and to bring their difficulties before the Lord. You're to teach them the word of God. And the last thing he says there, and show them. I believe that one of the things that the pastor must do is not just teach the word of God, but he must live the word of God. He must be somebody that people can look at. Not that he's perfect, because no man is. But you know what? The pastor would be somebody you look and say, you know what, he talks the talk, but he's walking the walk too. And if they're not walking the walk, they're disqualified from ministry. That's very clear in the Bible. If the guy gets up and says one thing, and then he's out cheating on his wife, wait a minute, out of there. Amen? If, if he's not giving, if he's not, if he's not humble, if he's not sharing his heart, if he didn't have a burden for the lost, he shouldn't be the pastor. Pastor means under rower. The guy at the bottom of the boat, right? The church doesn't go like this with the pastor at the top. The church goes like this with the pastor at the bottom. The pastor is the chief servant. That's what it means. And too many times we get that thing turned around. Moses was the chief servant, and he was taking that for, grant, uh, for real, but he needed to delegate. He needed to give away the ministry. 
Now we're going to see here the calling of the first elders in the Bible. Elders to the church. And what are the elders? And why does he call them? And what are they supposed to do? We're going to finish up with that tonight. So he says, you need to give some ministry away. So what kind of men do they call? And look at it says in verse 20. And you shall, it says there, teach them, verse 21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Now, Calvary Chapel, we have a, a real clear model of church. I didn't like to use the word government because I don't like that word. I don't like the word board. We don't model our church after IBM, okay? We don't have boards and committees of committees and boards of boards and, you know, all this other stuff. And other churches, they got 97 committees and 42 boards and everybody's got to vote. You know what? There's nobody was ever elected pastor in the Bible. They don't vote on the pastor. Do you ever see anybody voting for pastors in the Bible? You see them voting for elders in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. You do that at the PTA, but you don't do that in the church. You know Why? Because when you po- bring politics into the church, it destroys it. Everybody starts voting. When well, my dad was a pastor, I don't want to embarrass him, but they used to have a vote of confidence every year. What is that all about? A vote of confidence. We're going to vote on whether or not we should keep you as our pastor. And then they open up the microphone, and people come up and start saying, well, and 87 people can say good things, but four people start bagging on you. Oh, yeah, that's true. He didn't always call me back either, you know. And before you know it, what do you got? You got division. That's not God. You don't see that anywhere in the Bible. And you don't see boards, and you don't see committees, you don't see elections. You see God calling people. Amen? And people responding to the call of God. And that's why, and I want to say this real clear. We don't have elections here, and you'll never see one. Well, I'll never be passing out a slip for you to vote for who the new pastor. You know, we're going to have a new assistant pastor. Let's vote. We're not doing that. You know why? Because there's no example of that in the Bible. What does it say here? It says, Moses, you shall select... You choose, you pick, you look and you find guys. You know, when we raise up elders in this local church, you know what we do? We look for guys who are already functioning that way and nobody's calling them that. They're already ministering to people. They're already serving people. They're already the ones that people go to for counsel. They're already the ones that are ministering to people from the Word. And all we do is, say, is identify what God has already done. It's not the elections of men, it's the calling of God and we identify it. That's it. And so too often in the church, we want position. We want a title. I want a title after my name. I want to be, you know, most holy potentate, high, high deacon Dave, right? You know what I mean? We've got to have all these titles and people come in and get badges on their name. And you know what? That's not in the Bible. It's not anywhere in the Word. It's servant. And so the Lord says, you pick these guys, able men. Now, it's interesting that when you see the elders in the Bible, you don't ever see them in a board. You don't ever see them in a committee. There's no budget committees in the Bible. You don't see the elders all sitting around, oh, what do you think we ought to do? Let's vote on it. Let's take it before the people. Let's have a budget meeting. You don't see that in the Bible. That's corporate America that's coming to the church. Ask these guys, when we, when we sat down and we were writing up our bylaws, you know, church is only a couple years old. The first thing I did is I said, every time I see that word board in there, I want that whited out of there immediately. I don't want to see that word board in there. It makes me sick. Why? Because it's corporate America, not the word of God. And so what happens is he says, you know what? I want you to raise up elders. Now, for me, the example is when you see the elders in the Bible, whether it's in the book of Acts or in the epistles or in the book of Revelation, or more importantly, when you see the four and twenty elders that are in heaven, what are they doing? The four and twenty elders in heaven in the book of Revelation, they're worshiping, they're taking their crowns and they're throwing them before the Lord, 
It says they're pointing people to God, pointing people to the Lord. They point people to Christ. That's what the elders are doing. They're not sitting around in committees and voting on what color to paint the nursery. That's not what they're doing, okay? They're not having debates. They're not having politics. They're pointing people to Christ. They're interceding on behalf of the people. That's what the elders are called to do. Now, what kind of people are they? Look what it says here. It says they're able men, men who fear God. They're called and equipped by God. They walk in awe and reverence of the Lord. They're people that, that just are in awe and reverence of Almighty God. They don't seek position. You know what? Typically, when I ask someone to pray about being an elder, you know what they typically say? Oh, no, I... I it's never somebody says, oh, I've been waiting. I was wondering when you were going to ask. That never happens. It's always somebody that's humble and is serving God and doesn't even want it. Well, no, just don't, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing, but don't. And the only reason we even say these are the elders in the church is so that you guys will know that it's not just Moses that you can go to. Amen? That there, here's somebody else you can come to for godly counsel. Here's somebody who's been walking with the Lord and, is, and wants to serve you and is available. Someone who walks in fear of God. It says, many whose hearts and focuses on the truth. They're not worried about pleasing men as much as teaching truth. You know what? It's not a popularity contest. The Bible says in the end times they will raise up ear ticklers. People raise up people that will tickle their ears and teach them what they want to hear. I'm going to teach you stuff you want to hear so you'll come back next week and maybe you'll tithe a little more. Well, you know what? We're not going to do that here. We're going to teach you the truth of God's Word and pray that through the Word of God you will be transformed more and more like Jesus and we can have an impact on Santa Cruz County. Amen? That's the key. Teach the word, love the people. That's it. And so that's the kind of men. He says, men who love the truth. Men whose heart is for the truth. Lastly, it also says, not covetous, not seeking earthly, not seeking earthly gain, but men who desire to lay down their lives in the ministry for, to others. You know what? Every guy I've ever met is truly called a ministry. These guys will work 75 hours a week and it will be a joy. And they need to be careful. They don't want to be Moses. They don't want to forget their first ministry, their wife and their kids. But you know what? It's a get-to and it's not a have-to. It's not a bummer. It's a joy. You usually have to chase them out of here at 10 o'clock at night because they're still cleaning stuff up, right? You know, those are the kind of guys, because they, they're called. It's a get-to. They love to serve and minister to others. And that is what kind of men the Lord calls. It says there at all times. Look at the next verse. And let them judge the people at all times. That speaks of commitment. At all times. These guys are available 24-7, all the time. You know what? We have our elders listed in our, in our bullet. You call them anytime. You call me anytime. Why? Because when does a shepherd stop being a shepherd? What? Shepherds don't take a nap and let the sheep just wander around. Shepherd, and it, it cracks me up. And I, Please, I want to make this really clear. Some of you will call me at home and you'll apologize for calling me. You don't have to. I, that's why I'm there. Amen? You call me up. Oh, Pastor Dave, really sorry to bother you at home. I hope that you don't have that perception. You're not bothering me. It's a total blessing that God would actually use me to minister to you. You know what? I want you to call me at home anytime you want to. You don't have to call and wait for me to call you, but just call me. That, you know, two o'clock, call me. And I told the youth group that and they used to call me all the time. And you know what? I want to be available because to me, this is eternal stuff. And I love you guys and I'm praying for you guys. It also talks here, look what it says. Then it will be that every great matter that shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall themselves judge. So it will be easier for you that you will, they will bear their burden with you. Here's the thing. Why do we have assistant pastors? Why do we have other elders? It's because they hold up my hands. They hold up your hands. They're the ones that come alongside and say, let me help you. Let me hold up your hands. Let me make the, 
the, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Amen? Moses was standing by himself and he couldn't do it by himself. Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. Amen? Each one of us must have godly friends to hold up our hands or we will fail every single time. If you try to walk the walk without the Lord, if you try to, I mean, without time in the Word, without people in this room who have other gifts to minister to you, you know what? I'm here to minister to you, but you're here to minister to me. Amen? I need you every bit as much as you need me. That's the way the kingdom of God works. God has called us to be a body. If I'm an eye and you're an ear, I can do all the seeing, but I need you to do the hearing. Amen? And we must be a family. We must be a body. One of the things I love, especially on Sunday mornings, you have a lot of new people coming in. One of the things I hear people say to me all the time, and it blesses me, you guys, I can't tell you how much, they say, man, you guys love each other. Every time I come there, man, I feel welcome. You guys are like a family. You guys love each other. And I think, man, praise the Lord. That is so good. Because that's the way it ought to be in the kingdom of God. Amen? Everybody that walks in that door ought to feel so welcomed and so loved. Let's close up here. Verse 23. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all the people will also go to their, to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. It's interesting here. All the people's needs were ministered to. and There would be no burnout if everybody was faithful to their calling. If you'll respond to what God's calling you to do, then no one will burn out in ministry. No one. Why? Because nobody will be doing more than they're supposed to. I tell tell people this all the time. If you have to strive to attain it, you'll have to strive to keep it. If you do things in your flesh, then you're going to have to stay in your flesh to keep them going. You know, if we had the flying Melinda's here on Wednesday night, you know, and Bozo the Clown and free cheeseburgers out, you know, if you show up for church, you know, we get a lot of people to show up, but you've got to keep having the clowns and the flying Melinda's to get people to come back. Because what you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them with the, if you win them with the games and the PowerPoint presentations and all that other stuff, then that's what you want them to. And if you turn that thing off, they're all going to leave. But if you win them with the Word of God, you will win them to the Word of God. Amen? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And their lives will be changed and transformed and they won't fall in love with the method and they won't fall in love with the message, but they'll fall in love with the Messiah. Amen? They'll fall in love with the Lord. They'll be talking about Him when they go to work on Monday. Not how eloquent the speaker was, but how great the message was and the truth of God's Word. And so he went back and he listened. And I love the fact that Moses heeded the counsel from his father-in-law. That's a great sign of humility. He went right back and he listened to what his father-in-law said and he put it into action. And Moses chose, Moses chose, and the Israelites had a great election. Is that what it says there? They had campaigning. Vote for, vote for Bill, for, you know, vote for Jim, vote for Steve, for, for Elder, right? They didn't do that. It says, and Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Now lastly, I want to say this. As our church continues to grow, I know God is going to bring more and more people to do ministry. You know what? I prayed from the day we started two years ago with about five people. My prayer was, Lord, bring the servants first. And God has. And as the church continues to grow, he'll bring more and more people that are called to do all the ministry that needs to be done. And we don't have to strive to make it happen. God will bring them, because he always does. He's always right on time. And some of you are moving over here all the time, and God's doing great things, and I'm blessed to see what God's doing. And it's all just preparation as the church continues to grow. 
But I want to tell you this. I want to make it really clear. That there are churches that don't vote people in that are still a mess. Right? They appoint people and they appoint the wrong people. But I want to tell you this. Just to encourage you. Be praying for us. You know, the pastors that are here. But know this. We don't do anything unless all of us agree 100%. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. Amen? And you know what? The Holy Spirit's not going to tell me one thing and my dad one thing and Bill something else and Chris something else. And you know, we get together. If we don't all have a piece about it, we don't do it. Why? Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. We trust Him. Um, along those lines, just so you know, just so, something for you to be praying for, we're going to be on the radio starting September the 9th. We're going to be on KFAX. Now, KFAX reaches from Sacramento almost to Fresno. And Pastor Don from San Jose is going to be going down to Costa Mesa to help Chuck, and that's his spot. And the five of us that have come out and started churches, and myself and Matt and Gilroy and Tim Brown and Fremont and Dino and San Mateo and then Mike who's taken over San Jose, we're each going to take a day of the week and we're going to start being able to reach tens of thousands of people every single day with the gospel. Isn't that great? And so, you know, be praying about that, that God's word would not return void. But that's one of those things that we got together is that we pray about, Lord, what do you want us to do? And we're doing it. And it's an opportunity. And you know what? Praise the Lord for that. And, I, and again, I want you to, it says something in Numbers that really encourages me. Numbers 11, it says, I will take the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same spirit upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. It's not a man who does anything. The same spirit that is in Chuck Smith, or the same spirit that's in Pastor John Corse, and two of my favorite Bible teachers in the world, is the same spirit that's in me, that's in you, that's in all of us. And that's why we can pray for each other. Amen? That's why we can't encourage one another. It blesses me when I walk out here and I see people praying for each other all over. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way the church ought to function. So in closing, if the worship team will come on up. What do we look at tonight? Moses was reunited with his, with his family. We need to remember the call to fulfill what God has called us to do in our homes above all else. Second of all, we saw Moses humbly coming to his father-in-law, him heeding godly counsel, and him raising up other people, giving ministry away. There's nothing I love more than giving ministry away. There's nothing I love more than seeing you guys stretched in your faith. There's nothing I love more than Friday morning having that time where guys have never taught the Bible before, and now you guys are teaching the Word, and I'm watching you grow right in front of my eyes. That's exciting to me. I don't want to hold on to this. I want to let it go. I want to give as much of this stuff away as I possibly can, because that's how you guys grow, and that's how the body grows. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word, and we thank you, Lord, that Lord, it's not based on the popul- our popularity before men. It's not based on our ability. But, Lord, just being available by you, before you, so that you may call us, Father God. And, Lord, I know you desire to use every person in this room. And, Lord, may we just be available, Father. May we say, Lord, here I am. Send me. Use me, Father. And, Lord, I just pray that each one of us would take whatever gifts you've given us, whether it's the gift of helps, the gift of administration, the gift of leading people in worship, or just, Lord, ministering to people, being a prayer warrior, whatever it might be, Father. I pray you would take those gifts, Lord, in our, and put them in our hearts, Father, and then we would use them for your kingdom. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand up and close the worship songs.